Welcome to the Dr. Vincent Buscemi podcast, the survival guide for dentists and doctors. We have an amazing guest today, Dr. Phil Hellman. Phil, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. So we were just talking before we started recording. I reached out to Phil because we have a mutual patient who ends up being Phil's best friend that he's going hunting with later. So small world. <laughs> so Phil, tell me about... You feel stuck on the financial hamster wheel. You keep paying on your debts like mortgages, car notes, student and business loans, but they never seem to disappear. My name is Dr. Howard Polanski, former dentist, now founder of Cashflow Coach USA. I guide families and business owners through a simple system to dramatically reduce your payment towards debt. You keep your same lifestyle and keep more money each month. A recent client will pay off their house in just seven months instead of the anticipated 20 years. Free 10-minute discovery call will determine if I can help you too. Go to CashflowCoachUSA.com, scan the QR code, or call 512-608-1020 to find financial freedom faster. Are you tired of using ineffective cosmetics and personal care products filled with harmful chemicals? Meet Ancestral Cosmetics and our range of highly effective products rooted in ancestral wisdom and made with edible ingredients such as beef tallow, olive oil, and raw local honey. Check out our best-selling tallow and honey balm for soft and smooth skin or our revolutionary tooth powder made from eggshells for effective teeth cleaning and whitening without any toxic ingredients. Free US shipping for orders over $50 and you can shop now at ancestralcosmetics.com. Your medical training. Where'd you go to med school? Why'd you get into medicine? So I did, uh, I did undergrad at Grand Valley over on the west side of the state. And then I went to medical school at Michigan State. Um, I didn't really take any time off in between. And then went and did residency in Colorado uh, in family medicine. And then when you get so, out, what's your first job? My first job was doing rural family medicine in Oregon. Uh, I did that for a year and a half. And then I moved back here uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but yeah, so like rural family medicine, um, typically more procedural. So I was doing surgical OB. So I was delivering babies and doing C-sections. And then I was also doing endoscopy at the time. I was doing colonoscopies and EGDs for my patients, um, which was super fun, you know, really you know, you have some days where you're just going in and doing some scopes instead of like taking care of diabetes and, you know, bread and butter primary care stuff, but it's a little more relaxed, kind of change of pace. So I really enjoyed it. Um, but it was also crazy, you know, cause you'd have nights where you're like up delivering a baby at four in the morning, and then you got a full day of clinic the next day. And, uh, it's just, it's pretty brutal. So, um, and then the practice I was at was kind of imploding. Uh, it's now actually bought out by the hospital. And my father-in-law had a recurrence of cancer. And we had no family around. My wife got pregnant with her second child. And we're kind of like, we never get to go to the mountains, which is kind of why we're out here. Because uh, we have kids now. Like, what are we doing? Let's just move back. What's it like delivering a baby like your first year out of medical or out of residency? Well, it's not the first time you delivered a baby. Um, so, I mean, 
that that's the whole idea behind residency, right? So you you get all this training. I had delivered, I don't know, I, I had been I had done over a hundred C-sections of which I had primaried probably like 80 or 90 of, um, meaning I'm like the primary surgeon, not just the one assisting. And then vaginal deliveries, I lost count. I mean, probably like two, 300 in residency. So, um, so it's not, I mean, it's a little different being that you don't necessarily have that like whole kind of residency team around you, but it's not that, it's not that different. I had, I had really great training. That's, that's how, you know, if you have a good residency program or not, it's once you get out, how comfortable are you on your own? Hey, Phil, you broke up there for a second. Can you hear me? Oh, uh, yeah, I can hear you. You're good now. You're good. So okay. I, I was under the assumption only OBGYNs could deliver babies. Right. So that's not true. Uh, so you do, you get OB training in all family medicine programs. It's just a question of how much. So there's like ACGME is the governing body over residency programs in the curriculum. You have to do a certain amount of OB, but like if you're more East coast medicine, which is much more like primary care kind of hands off, like they refer every, cut and skin lesion to dermatology instead of dealing with it themselves kind of thing. Um, they do like the very minimum amount for OB and then none of them do it. Whereas in the Midwest, a lot of family docs will actually do like vaginal deliveries once they're done with residency. <clears throat> and then there's a handful of residency programs around the country, mine included in Greeley, uh, that if you want to, you, you can get the surgical OB training if you kind of elect to do that and spend the extra time. So you got to, you know, go in early, you've got to sort of put yourself out there say, Hey, I want to be in the OR. Um, you know, I want to get that training and then they just kind of let you do it. And then you can get privileges at the hospital that you work at based on your numbers. Okay. Why are people referring everything out on the East coast? I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of like bigger cities, you know? So <clears throat> we say East coast, but even if you're in Detroit or if you're in Chicago or just the, the more, um, the more urban you are, the less the scope of the family doctor in general, you know, you'll find your <clears throat> unicorns out there that are, um, that are, you know, more, doing other stuff. But in general, you see that trend where, you know, the, the more rural you are, the fewer specialists there are. So you're it, you know, like I did a rotation in, um, or I did a, not a rotation, but I, I did some moonlighting in like super rural Colorado, like towns of 500 people. And so I was at this critical access hospital and there was a, a, guy who came in with, he was getting Accutane from his family doctor. And I was like, Hey, don't, don't you guys just have dermatology do this? He's like, there's no dermatologist here. He's like, you're it. You, you do everything. <clears throat> so it's kind of fun that way. You know, it, um, it, it really, you know, trains you well, um, to, to be able to do a lot of different stuff. Dentistry is similar. The more rural you are, you're doing oral surgery, endodontics, gum surgery, and the yeah. more like where I, I practice in Bloomfield Hills and like anything above a dental crown, 
like people are referring out to specialists. So same thing in dentistry yeah. too. Yeah. And I mean, it, <clears throat> it can become a problem in that then you have too much, too many people being referred out for, for stuff that doesn't need to be referred out. Absolutely. You know? Like I talked to a pediatric neurologist the other day who told me he, he, he was kind of like venting to me. <clears throat> He's like, I got a referral the other day for a one-year-old who wasn't walking yet. I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, we, <clears throat> obviously we say you're supposed to walk at one, but it's not some hard and fast rule. There's plenty of kids who don't walk till they're 15 months, 18 months. <laughs> so we, we do have this over referral uh, problem. Definitely. What do you think drives that? What do you think drove the referring doctor to think instead of saying, go home and wait a couple of months that we, we need to see a pediatric neurologist for this. Well, if you've been in the room with, with the patient specifically in pediatrics, it, it can be any number of things. Um, my guess is the parents probably played a role. Okay. So you definitely have a lot more, I guess you could say hypervigilant or maybe worried or anxious parents nowadays that aren't like, Hey, it'll be fine. You know, they'll learn how to walk. Like I always tell parents, have you ever met an adult who didn't learn how to walk? Like can't walk. <laughs> they, that, that they, they've, they've never figured it out. <laughs> like, yeah. This guy doesn't ambulate because, because nobody <laughs> taught him how to walk when he was a kid. Oh my gosh. That's funny. <clears throat> so if you, if you do those kind of thought experiments with people, it helps to kind of, you know, break things down. But, you know, you see a lot of people going for speech therapy for, uh, you know, my kid's not wanting to eat food, so I need a speech therapy evaluation. And you're like, maybe you just give them some more time. Um, you know, with, with that said, like those types of therapies can help, but um, you definitely have just a lot more utilization of healthcare, I'd say, you know. So we're the same age. You're probably what, mid-30s, same as me. Yeah. So what's driving our generation of parents, me and you, to put our kids through this? Because I see kids that maybe they're one or two and they're already seeing chiropractors or they're seeing physical therapists or I've never seen so many helmets in my life to make a round head. When I was a kid, it was just like, if you have a flat head, good luck. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. That's a great question, Vince. I I think uh, there's probably a lot of factors is you know, consumerism is obviously a thing. Um, I was actually just reading about it. Have you heard of that book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry? No. Okay. J uh, John Mark Comer, he's a pastor out in Portland. Um, so it's, it has, you know, overt, you know, religious context, but it's, it's about slowing your life down. And he goes through the history of consumerism. <clears throat> There's actually some really unique history. Um, back i can't remember exactly when it was i want to say it's like post world war 1 um or post world war 2 and a large portion of this actually has to do with hitler's son and i can't remember his name <clears throat> but he goes through and talks about how if we can get human beings to be bigger consumers then they're easier to control um and the economy is also easier to control. And so I think that that plays 
sort of a factor, right? And that we're always kind of looking for the next thing, even in health, um, instead of kind of getting back to basics, you know, kind of what's the shiny new toy, uh, what's the new sexy thing. Um, and then also just, you know, marketing, social media, <clears throat> social media is everything, you know? I think that's rotting our brains for sure. And I'm sure when you see kids, how many more kids do you think have ADD or ADHD probably induced by social media? Yeah. Like all of them. Yeah. And it's scary to think is one day they're going to be running for government senators and that these are people controlling the economy, the country, and they can't focus for more than 10 seconds. I just read a, it was a tweet actually. I saw it. It just popped up on my phone. I mean, who knows? It could be fake, but it, it sounded legit. It was a, a person saying <clears throat> uh, they're from their uh, MIT graduate and they were doing alumni interviews for, you know, future, you know, MIT undergrads. And it was something like five out of six or six out of six um, people that she was supposed to interview just didn't show up for the interviews. Oh my gosh. To go to MIT. For the, like, she's one like, of the hardest schools. So she was, to. yeah, she was venting about like, she's like, what is it with Gen Z? Like, I don't, can somebody please explain this to me? Like, <laughs> can you imagine having the so, intelligence to get able to have an interview and then you don't have like the awareness to show up to the interview? Yeah, there's a lot to be said for soft skills. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Oh my gosh. I could go on forever about this, but I need to know more about <laughs> your practice model. So, because I thought you were what was called fee for service. Obviously, I'm so ignorant to the, this medical model. Can you explain to me your practice model and why you wanted to go into this type of model? Yeah, sure. So, um, I always kind of knew that I wanted my own medical practice, but I didn't know how to do it. Right. Sorry. Excuse me. That's fine. <clears throat> Just had a lot of drainage. Oh, it's that um, time of year, man. Everything outside, everything's draining. My whole family just got done being sick too. So, um, so I, like I said, I always knew I wanted to do my own thing because I kind of had some different ideas about different facets of medicine, things that I wanted to do that weren't really, I guess, acceptable by most like large practices or hospitals, um, you know, things like how to treat diabetes and, and that sort of thing. Um, and when I was at my other practice in Oregon, I heard about direct primary care. So there was a guy in my practice who left the group to do exactly what I'm doing. His name's Rob Rossborough. He started Township Health DPC. It's, um, it's a pretty large DPC practice. I think he's got more patients under his care than any other DPC physician in the country. It's, he's got like a thousand patients he takes care of, care of, which for DPC is like twice as many as most docs. Um, and so he told me about this model, which is just membership based primary care. You don't bill insurance at all for your time. So typically when people go to see the doctor, they get billed a 99213 or 99214. And those are just codes. They're called E&M codes. Um, that they get reimbursed for 
99213 being like a simple visit, like you got a cold. 99214 is like somebody comes in with heart failure and COPD and you got to manage their medications and draw some labs and see how they're doing. And you get paid when you see the patient. In direct primary care, we collect a monthly membership fee from our patients um, and that's it. So when they come in to see us, there's no copay. They don't pay us. Doesn't matter how long we see them for, we don't get paid anything extra. So at, on average, our patients are paying us around 60 or 65 bucks a month. It, so it's age-based. Um, we're at, you know, so people who are uh, zero to 19 are 40 bucks a month, 20 to 39 years old, uh, 60 a month, and then 40 to 64 is 80 a month. And then Medicare and up 65 and up is a hundred a month. Um, so somebody who's paying me $60 a month, they can come in for an hour long visit. It's still just 60 bucks for that month. Um, there's no so other every, fees. There's no other fees. So I'm 36. It would cost me what? 720 bucks a year for you to be my doctor. Exactly. I got to switch. I got to come see you. Yeah. So, and this differs from concierge medicine in that concierge medicine uh, typically is, is an annual fee. So you got to pay the year up front. It's a lot more. So it's about $2,500 is the average rate. That's what MDVIP is charging right now. They're the biggest concierge group in the country. Um, they've got, you know, clinics all over. So 2,500 a year. And then when they see you, they're also billing your insurance. Um, and like we were talking about before the show, we call that double dipping or a hybrid practice. What we find though, is that if you're built, if you're doing a membership based primary care practice and you're billing insurance, you just kind of end up being crappy at both things and it doesn't work well. Um, you know, so we just don't do it. And, uh, a big premise behind this is that we just think it makes no sense to insure for primary care, right? It's like the same thing that the analogy we always draw is what if you had insurance for your gasoline, your tire changes and your oil changes, what would those cost? It'd be astronomical. Gas would be three times as much. You'd have to call your, your auto insurance company before you left the state to get permission and they tell you where you're allowed to fill up at. You know, you can only fill up that shell. You can't fill up that mobile, <clears throat> which is how health insurance works, right? You can only see this doctor. You can't see that doctor. Mm -hmm. They're out of network. Yep. Um, it, or grocery insurance. My friend, my friend Ryan Newhoffel wrote an article that was in, um, it was in uh, Reason Magazine about what if we had insurance for groceries? It was called Green Health, Green Green Shield, Green Cross, <clears throat> right? You go to the store. There's no prices on anything. You have no idea what your what your policy covers, and you're like, "Oh shoot!" You know, there's the aged cheese. I really want some, but I I don't think my policy covers that. I, I think I'm just gonna have to get the craft singles. You know, and, and so sure enough, you get all your groceries and you go up to the counter and you check out and you just have no idea what it's going to cost you. And then they ring everything up and they're like, oh, it'll be two hundred and fifty dollars. 
and you're like, man, I'm just glad it wasn't a thousand. And I'm just so grateful that my employer gives me grocery insurance. This is, this is primary care insurance. I mean, this is what people live with. Um, so if we can get rid of insurance for primary care, the stuff that's predictable, the stuff you know is going to happen, costs come down, people are happier, doctors are happier, you know, it gets rid of all the bloat. Um, I have one office staff, one, to run my whole clinic. She answers the phones, she draws blood, she takes vitals, you know, and she's not incredibly busy. You know, we have busy days, but uh, most primary care offices have an entire basement full of staff. Oh, yeah. To take care, to help out, you know. Compared to, let's say, traditional medicine, what percent is your overhead to run your business compared to someone who takes all these PPOs and HMOs and sees people all day? So a typical doctor will get paid, and it really depends, but it's typically 30 to 40% of what they bring in and the rest is considered overhead. Okay. So like I just spoke with a doc in Bloomfield actually, who's thinking about switching, um, switching over to DPC. I don't want to give too much away because I don't want, you know, her employer to listen to the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but she gets paid 30% of her revenue. Okay. 30%. So 70% overhead. Mine, you know, it depends on the practice, right? Because if you've got a bigger practice, you've got bigger overhead. I I want to say mine's around like 30% is my overhead. So it's like reversed. Wow. Yeah. Dentistry is general dentistry is like 60, 70% overhead, similar to doctors. Yeah. But I mean, you know, dentistry is, it's a lot like, like, uh, like seeing a specialist in medicine, right? Like you've got a lot of capital, you've got a lot of equipment, you've got, you know, you're constantly autoclaving your stuff. Um, so it's very labor intensive and capital intensive. Primary care is not, you know, it, we're mostly talking to people, mm-hmm. trying to help them figure their problems out and getting them to lose weight and counseling them on different things. Um, so it's totally different. It's a lot harder for specialists to do direct primary care. There's some cases where it works, something like rheumatology or endocrinology, where people are kind of, you know, they see their doctor a lot. And, you know, if they've got like a chronic issue um, where they're, they're always going in to see their specialist, then it can work. But it's, you know, something like ear, nose and throat, where it's really procedural based dentistry. Um, really the model is more direct pay, like getting, getting insurance out of it, but not necessarily doing like a membership thing. Did you start, was it a cold startup fresh? No. Like yeah. I started fresh. There's people who transition and, you know, obviously they can get a lot of their existing patients to follow them to their new practice. But when you start fresh, it's like, yeah, it's hard. You've got to, I, I had to go out and do marketing for three years, basically. Um, and I still do some marketing, but not a ton because you don't just have insurance companies feeding you patients. So tell me about the early days. What's a, did you buy your building? No. Okay. So I actually looked into buying a building, uh, this year and I was going to buy a building in downtown Rochester. It really like it had a lot that I wanted, like had parking. It was a good size, you know, all this stuff. 
the property taxes alone were about the same that I pay in monthly rent right now. Oh my gosh. So I'm like, why would I, the only reason to buy a building is to say that I own real estate. That's it. Yeah. Like, it makes no sense. Um, yeah. So no, I I've rented, I started out in a chiropractor's office. I rented a room from a chiropractor. Can you say who uh, was it in Rochester? Yeah. Uh, Tony Purdy. Okay. Is it, is it not on Walton? Is it? No, is that it was at Tinkin and Rochester road. Okay. Yeah. I know where that yeah. is. Yep. Yeah. Now it's a cycle bar. Okay. Because <laughs> Tony bought a building to get out of his lease. The lease was insane. It was like 6k a month Oh my gosh. with triple net. It's so expensive. So he got out, he bought a building um, and he's doing really well. And then once his lease was up, I found a new spot and upgraded to just kind of like an old, uh, old medical office with, you know, five patient rooms and front desk and lobby. And so, um, yeah, so I'm in a, I'm in a good spot and my overhead's low. I got a great landlord that, you know, treats me well. And, um, yeah, the, the name of the game really is like keep overhead low because, you know, with the membership model, it's really, you know, every patient that joins you, once your overhead is covered, that's all profit. Like your overhead doesn't continue really to go up as you gain more patients, unless you decide you got to hire another staff member or something like that. Um, so it's great, you know, and, and the, so the other thing is you're not incentivized to see people necessarily, which is good because for a lot of medical issues, people don't really need to come in like your run of the mill UTI. The recommendation by all the societies is you treat that over the phone, right? You don't, they don't have to come in and give you a urine sample. The only reason why a lot of clinics want that is because then they can bill for the urinalysis. They can bill insurance for it. Um, if they do it in house. So, uh, it's a lot more convenient for the patients. You know, we, we only make them come in when we say, yeah, I, I need to see that in person. Um, so it takes care of the convenience aspect or, you know, we call that the access issue. They have a lot of access to their doctor. My patients all have my phone number. They can call me, they can text me. Um, so takes care of that. It takes care of the quality issue because of time, really time with your doctor is, is the problem in, in medicine and also a reason for over referral. If you only have five minutes with your patient, you can't really sit down and figure their stuff out. And so you're going to say, well, you need to go see the specialist because my time's up with you. Um, I actually just saw an article about that from a hematologist who got all these ridiculous referrals for stuff that, you know, didn't need to be seen because they had two minutes, five minutes with their doctor who couldn't just look something up really quickly. Um, so it takes care of those two issues with which concierge medicine also takes care of, right? The quality and the access but it doesn't take care of the cost part. And that's where DPC comes in. Um, so the whole focus of the direct primary care movement is really to replace the fee for service model. And in our ideal world, every primary care doc is a DPC doc, right? And so you've got 20 DPC docs in your town to choose from, and you can kind of pick the person that fits your personality and your, um, you know, kind of choose your own adventure uh, in a way, you know, because people don't want cookie cutter medicine. They don't want McDonald's for primary care, right? They want 
um, they want bespoke, right? That's really what they want. And so when you have independent docs, you know, their personalities kind of come through in their practice and people kind of, um, people kind of move towards those docs that, that fit with them and fit with their, you know, kind of uh, beliefs, frankly, you know, cause things are pretty opinionated now at his in medicine. What's preventing more doctors from going to this model? Um, doctors aren't risk takers. <laughs> Either a dentist, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Um, but I would argue there's a lot more risk takers in dentistry than there is in primary care and medicine. Um, hence, you know, I mean, your, are your dental practices owned by hospitals? They're more and more owned by corporations, but nothing's owned by a hospital. That's true. So yeah, I mean, venture capital obviously is getting in on it. Um, actually know somebody who is part of the great expressions team. Okay. They're um, actually one of the better ones. I would say that on, okay. yeah, out of all the well, corporations. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. I know, I have a friend who's a PT and um, he told me after ATI got wrapped up by venture capital, the physical therapy place that they just totally, the quality went so downhill. Oh, I'm sure they're um, everywhere. They're like on every corner. Yeah, I know. So yeah. So one, it's the personality type. And then two, it's um, you put yourself in their shoes. So you go through all this schooling, right? And inevitably, unless you come from money or some money and your parents are able to pay for your medical school, which that, you know, it does happen more often than people realize you have all this debt. I was at 280,000 when I finished and I had no undergrad debt. That was all medical school. And I did in-state public medical school. Wow. two eighty. Right? So like as cheap as I could do it. Yeah. I was still at 280 and you got to pay that off. Right. I mean, maybe not now. I don't know what the what's going on with student loans nowadays. It's kind of wild out there. But at the time that I finished, you had to pay that <laughs> yeah. off. And and so you're like, well, what do I do? Do I start my own DPC practice making zero dollars <laughs> <laughs> or or this hospital over here or this group, maybe large group practice? is telling me that I can start out making 250 plus a $50,000 sign on bonus, which, you know, maybe I can go out and buy a brand new car with because I've never had one of those. And now I'm a doctor. So shouldn't I be driving around a brand new car? Uh, or maybe I can put it towards a down payment on a house or, you know, you have all this money, basically, you just get shocked with all this, all these offers, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, you're going to take the money. Um, and then a year and a half in, you're miserable. Yeah. You know, I, my, uh, guy that I roomed with in, uh, residency called me up, like, I think it was a year and a half or two years out. And he was like, dude, I'm done. He's like, I'm so sick of medicine. I was like, you're two years out. <laughs> like, what's your plan? Basically what happened was his hospital got his local, he, he was doing rural medicine like I was, but in Minnesota, Mayo came in and bought the hospital. They're kind of buying everything up in that state. And he said it went from like being in a meeting where they say, Hey, well, let's ask, you know, the doctor what he thinks to, they don't even ask him anymore. They just tell him what to say or what to do. 
you know, it's, it's corporate medicine, right? I'm sure, you know, corporate dentistry, same thing, uh, similar kind of deal. So he was just like, I, I gotta be done, you know, between difficult patients and, and having basically a boss that doesn't care about you. Um, it, it totally, totally wrecks it. So are you a risk taker? Why are you different than your colleagues? Well, I was, I was starting from nothing. Right. So like I had left Oregon, I had managed to pay some debt off, you know, we had bought a house there and sold it and made some money on it. So I was in a, I was in a much different spot than coming right out. Um, I would say I'm definitely more business or entrepreneurial minded than I think most people in medical school. Um, and that was just kind of, that became an interest of mine in undergrad kind of towards the latter end, you know, of, so I started taking some econ courses, um, and just trying to kind of figure out how the world works, you know, cause I think most people don't know, like you ask your average dental student or med student, like what is a hedge fund or what is wall street? What happens there? Like nobody has a clue. Right. So I wanted to know these things. And, um, so I, I got kind of interested in that stuff. And, and so, you know, as far as like starting a business, I was like, I kind of somewhat knew what to do. Um, and then I just talked to a bunch of people. So I talked to that guy, Rob, that I mentioned in Oregon. I also met with this guy, Paul Thomas, who runs, a pretty big DPC in Detroit. He's got two other docs that work with him. It's called Plum Health and kind of, you know, basically just tried to figure out, okay, if I'm going to do this, what do I need to do? And I was like, it's not much. All you've got to do is file an LLC, get your tax ID, open up a business bank account, and then you can start seeing patients and charging them. That's it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not much. And then also the EMR company that I use, the medical record company is called Atlas MD. And they will for free just show you exactly what to do. They've got like a checklist on Basecamp to, um, you know, you, you look at your checklist and it's kind of like everything you need to do to start your practice. Um, so you just start going through that. And uh, yeah, I just, I made the decision. I also looked at it differently. I didn't think it really is a huge risk because if you fail, you can get a job at the hospital the next day. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're opening a restaurant and you're taking out loans and, you know, um, and then you can also moonlight. So, you know, I was working at urgent cares, doing some uh, research work to supplement my income because you have to do that when you start out until you hit a certain number of patients. And then you can scale back your um, your side hustles and just focus on your practice. What was your goal of I can have this many patients and I can leave my other part time jobs? Oh, there were a lot of those. It wasn't like one goal. It was, you know, it was always like, man, if I can just get 20 more patients, then, you know, I can lose this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, to be completely independent, it was probably in like the 250 range to 200, 250 patients. Okay. Do you know how many you have right now? I'm at, I think somewhere close to five. 3540. Wow. Are you on your website? There's another doctor that works at your practice as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She, she's an internal med doc. So, um, she's got a little bit fewer patients cause she doesn't see kids. So, you know, if we have a family join, 
typically, you know, like the husband and the kids join me and the wife joins her. So, um, but she's at like 140 patients ish right now. Um, she also works, she still is a, uh, part-time residency director for an outpatient internal med program in Pontiac through McLaren. Okay. Um, so she does that part-time and then she works here part-time. Um, so yeah. To add to your point about the risk, I always look at it this way. So let's say Phil, you have 500 patients or let's say you have one employer. If your one employer fires you, you're done. But the chances of all 500 patients leaving tomorrow is zero. So it actually right. seems more stable to own your own business, have 500 people paying you monthly than one boss paying you monthly. Right. And that's all to do with time preference, right? Yep. So it's a common kind of you know econ term really is, you know, do you want a dollar today or $5 in the future? Um, and people have a really hard time. Uh, seeing, you know, looking at a longer time horizon when it comes to that stuff, they're always just looking at what's in front of them. Um, you know, from a risk standpoint, from an investment standpoint, and from a health standpoint, hard to get, you know, a 20 year old to see two years into the future. And it's hard to get a 40 year old to see 40 years into the future. Oh and my plan gosh. for that with health. Cause I, although I don't manage any medical condition, I just see my patients, their health slowly deteriorating. And you mentioned yeah. earlier in the podcast, you had different ideas about treating diabetes, which it seems like all my patients are diabetic. What were your <laughs> ideas about treating diabetes that were contrary to what the hospital was? So I became a type one diabetic in medical school. And that was a big oh. reason why I went into primary care. Um, I actually really liked procedural stuff, which is probably why I did all the OB training and the scopes and stuff. Cause I, I like, I enjoy surgery and working with my hands and I felt like I had a, I had a knack for it, but I like, I didn't want to stay up all night and it, those guys have no lives. I mean, frankly, it's like my father-in-law just had three brain surgeries that neurosurgeon, I mean, bless his heart. He, that dude does not stop working like ever. And I was like, I can't do that. Um, but also I found through my own, you know, type one diabetic journey that I was able to control my blood sugars a lot better through diet, right? Which nobody really talked about. They did, but they didn't specifically say, cut your carbs down to virtually nothing. And then you can control your insulin dosing much easier. Right. And so I was kind of at the forefront of this. It's, it's actually become a lot more mainstream now. Um, through some various doctors at different academic centers now that have a voice with like the American Diabetic Association. But at the time it was just, hey, eat whatever you want and cover it with insulin. And I found that to be a losing strategy because then your blood sugar and your insulin levels are constantly on a roller coaster. And, um, and then you're much more likely to end up hypoglycemic, right? So if you have, if you have a big bowl of pasta, you don't know how much insulin to take for that. You just don't, you, you know, unless you have like a food scale sitting with you at the restaurant, right? So you take say eight units. What if you only needed six, you're overdosing by two units. Um, so instead of eating the pasta, you know, you get the chicken or, you know, that you get the protein and the fat because you don't have to take insulin for that basically, or it's a lot less. So it's just the law of like law of large numbers, law of small numbers. Um, 
And so I had this idea. Um, you know, I also knew like how important exercise was. You can really, you can exercise away diabetes in most cases, especially type two, um, and help to control it a lot better. So I just, I had a different strategy for it. I also view it as a disease of high insulin, not a disease of high blood sugar, right? So just like all other endocrine disorders, uh, if you take like thyroid, you have hypothyroidism and hyper, and the treatments are to either add in thyroid or take it away. It's the same with diabetes. You have type one and type two diabetes. One is hyperinsulinism, that's type two. And so what do you do? You take away the insulin. In type one, it's hypoinsulinism. You don't make any because your immune system destroyed your, your beta cells. So you have to give insulin. And, and that's really where it's at. So, you know, there's certain, for instance, there's certain drugs like glimepiride or glipizide, these sulfonylureas, these kind of old school oral diabetic drugs that increase insulin in order to control blood sugar. But that's just basically throwing gasoline on the fire. Um, so these were some of the things that I, that I started learning and, and, and thinking about and doing with my patients. And I was having a lot of success with it. Um, you know, and so I thought this is really an area where I can actually do something where, you know, there, there aren't like a million people everywhere doing this. You know, if I want to go be an orthopedic surgeon, well, there's like a hundred orthopedic surgeons around that are all great. Really? Like they're well-trained, they're doing good surgeries, they're, they've got good outcomes. Why do I need to add myself to the pile? Like, what am I really contributing? You know, so it, it helps with the why and the purpose and, you know, hey, you know, I'm doing this because nobody else is. Kind of like there's a need and I can fulfill that need. I love that when a doctor or any practitioner has a personal story attached to it and that you've experienced an autoimmune condition you've had type one diabetes, you use diet to control it. You're the best guy to go to for any form of diabetes because you know exactly how to deal with it because you dealt with it. I'm sure your patients really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Help. The only thing, the only thing is keeping up with all the new like, pumps and all that stuff. Oh is, yeah. <laughs> I always found it crazy that if hyperinsulinemia leads to insulin resistance, leads to diabetes, you treat diabetes with more insulin, I feel like that yeah. makes it worse. All it does is control the blood sugar, which, so I go through this with my patients. I say, hey, um, you know, what do diabetics die from, right? There's kind of like, there's two categories of, there's morbidity and then there's mortality, right? So like when you think of complicated, what you Vince, like what do you think of when you think of complications of diabetes? Kidney failure. Okay. What else? Uh, I, I think of like metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease, even like atherosclerosis, okay. cancer, everything that leads into. So you're, so what, what people typically think about are the small vessel diseases, right? So the smallest vessels are affected first by the blood sugar. So that's eyes, toes, and kidneys, right? So those are the, the smallest capillaries in your body. So you go blind, you end up on dialysis and you get your toes lopped off. Right. But those things don't kill you. Right. Mm -hmm. What does kill you is the heart attack and the stroke or the cancer. Right. But the so the small vessels are, are affected by the high blood sugar, but the medium and large vessels are affected by the high insulin. So hyperinsulinism 
is a direct risk factor for the number one cause of death in the country, ASCVD, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, right? So if you're trying to keep people alive, you need to be reducing their insulin load. Insulin's a great thing to have. We just want it at the right level. You know, you want it low, you want to be sensitive. And part of that is having a good amount of muscle on you because insulin receptors are on your skeletal muscle. That's where glucose is stored. So, you know, one other thing you can tell people is, hey, if you want to live long and not get diabetes, you need to maintain your muscle mass, which goes back to what you were saying about your patients getting unhealthy as they age, you lose muscle, right? You, you basically start getting sarcopenia in your thirties if you're not training. Uh, and so if you can get people to gain as much muscle as possible and maintain it through their, um, through their latter decades, then you can really keep them healthy. Have you read Peter Tia's new book outlive? Actually, to be honest, if I'm being totally truthful, I haven't read the whole thing. Okay. Um, but I found out about Peter Tia in 2013. Okay. And so that was back before he even had a podcast. He, he had this website called the Eating Academy. Um, this was back when he was doing his like keto experiments and stuff. He was keto for like two years. And, um, and yeah, so, I mean, he's, he's where I get most of the stuff from. Yeah. He's great. I was, so also- I, I mean, I've, cause this book is basically just his podcasts, you know, um, into a book. Like, yeah. You know, it, so if you've listened to all of the podcasts, like, you don't have to read the book is I've, cause I've you learned. You don't really keto. need to read the book. It's been good though. Like I, I read it and he, he, he did, um, there's some good like anecdotes and stuff that he put in there that I thought were really good that, you know, I hadn't heard before. So I do intend to finish the book, but it's a long book and <laughs> just haven't had the time yet. Oh, I, yeah. Four kids you run a practice. You're, but I did buy a signed copy. Oh, good for you. <laughs> 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 Phil, it is 1051. And I know you have a hard stop at 11. Let me ask you just one more question before you go. No, go for it. We got time. I kind of always end on this. You can go back in time. You're talking to 18 year old Phil. What is a one piece of advice you would give him to make his life a little bit easier? <sighs> Buy Bitcoin. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I don't don't really like have any big regrets. Like I love my life. I, you know, I think, you know, I love my family and everything. So I don't know. I wouldn't, I, yeah. It realistic advice that I, I don't know, maybe worry less, um, you know, let tomorrow worry about itself, you know, something like that. I think I would have the same. If I could go back and talk to myself 18 years ago, Worried less because all the like, worrying I did, none of that accomplished anything. No, and stuff worked out, right? I mean, yeah. You got your own podcast. Look at you. I got six listeners. I'm killing it. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Phil, I'm going to let you go. Uh, let's connect again. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Yeah. Sure thing. All right. Have a great day.